We've been talking the last few weeks about transformation, uh, about the ways that, that God invites us to take steps deeper into the transformation and into good life by examining some of the different things that, that make us who we are. And we've thought about our, our mind, our thoughts, and our feelings. And today we're going we're gonna to talk about our hearts and think about the ways that God uh, wants to invite us into transformation through our heart or our wills. One of the most uh, transforming moments in my life uh, came at the age of 15. Uh, growing up in Georgia, where I did, uh, when you turned 15, you were eligible to get your learner's permit to drive. And um, I know some states, you know, uh, they'll, they'll make you study for a few months, maybe a whole semester before you do that. Uh, in Georgia, all you had to do uh, was go to the DMV and pick up this little booklet and study all of these rules of the road and all these little facts. And after you studied for a little while, uh, you could walk right in and you could take a test. And if you passed it, you could leave and you could drive a, a, a two-ton vehicle uh, as long as you had an adult beside you. And so uh, I did the work at age 15. I went into the DMV. I passed the test. And I thought, it is, it is the best of times. And then I walked out the door, and I looked in the parking lot. Could you go to the next slide for me? Um, and, and, I, and then I remembered what I was going to start driving uh, now that I was 15, and I thought, it is, it is the worst of times. It is, uh, um, it is, it is not good. Uh, so as, as, as I entered into that, that practice of, of driving and learning to, to operate a vehicle, um, one of the things that I found is that you could learn about a vehicle all day long, but the act of driving did not necessarily come naturally to me. I remember uh, driving and it just being tense. Anybody had those experiences where you're driving with an adult and it is just tense in the vehicle? And a vehicle like that, there's all kinds of space for that tension to grow. And I remember, um, you know, two things that bothered my parents. One was that I, I just hugged the middle line too much. So I'd always be like, hey, you're too close to the middle line. And then I would overreact and it just, that was the whole thing. But the other thing that, that drove my, my dad crazy in particular is that when it came time to turn, I could not figure out which direction to push, push the lever to turn the, to get the blinker on in the right direction, right? Like it took me months to figure that out. I remember getting, you're not driving for a week until you just think about uh, what, and it's like, okay, okay. It just did not come automatic to me, right? But it's amazing what happens over time, right? How many of you, as you drove here this morning, how many of you even thought, hey, I'm turning left, I should turn, I should put my left blinker on. Did anybody remember having that conscious thought this morning? Or even as you, you drove here, a place that's familiar to you, uh, did you leave your, your home and think, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn left, and then I know my next turn is going to be in the right? Did you, did you go through the mental steps of, you know, these are the turns that I'm going to make? Like we, it becomes so automatic to us that we use a phrase for it, right? I know it by heart, right? I know it by heart. It means I, I don't just have the, the intellectual ideas, I don't just understand the concepts, but the, the heart is the center, the, the will, where we take those ideas, those thoughts, those feelings, and we put them into action. And when it works beautifully, it's a wonderful thing, right? You, you probably maybe drove here without breaking the law, and you did it pretty automatically, right? That's, that's amazing. And I think this morning, that's a picture of discipleship for us. Jesus wants our, our following of him to become almost automatic, almost second nature as we allow our, our hearts to be transformed by him uh, in ways that, that, that line up our lives with the, with the actual uh, goodness of God and the will of God. But that, that requires work for us. Discipleship 
is a matter of steps and intentionality. But as we enter into those steps and those practices, God meets us there and he transforms our hearts. That's the good news of Scripture. Proverbs tells us that above all else, we should guard our hearts because from our hearts, everything we do flows from it. So this morning, I want us to think about our hearts, our wills, that which flows automatically through us. As we think about that, one of the things that we might recognize in particular in connection to our relationship with God is that we don't always go the way that God wants us to go automatically. We don't always think the way uh, that, that lines up with the will of God automatically. It, it, it takes quite a bit of work and practice. Andrew Murray was a, uh, an 18th, or a 19th century pastor in Africa. Uh, this is one of the things that he said about our hearts or our wills. He said, we find the Christian life so difficult because we seek for God's blessing while we live in our own will. We should be glad to live the Christian life according to our own liking. So Andrew Murray is, is kind of telling us that uh, as we say, I, I want to I, I live my life in allegiance to Jesus, one of the things that, that enters in is duplicity. We, we want to follow Jesus. We, we want the, the gifts and the rewards of that. But we also want to do whatever it is that we want to do, right? I mean, that's what he's saying here. We, we, we want the Christian life, but we want it according to our own liking. I, I'll follow Jesus as long as he doesn't mess with my political beliefs. I'll follow Jesus as long as he doesn't mess with my bank account. I'll follow Jesus as long as he doesn't touch those things that are most important or most sacred to me. And Andrew Murray is saying, well, that's, that's a heart that's missing it. That's a heart that's, that's missing the will of God. And, and in so missing the will of God, missing the fullness of God. And what he's alerting us to is that sometimes our hearts need to change. Sometimes we need transformation. And one of the most dangerous things in the Christian life is that we could have arrived. We could have it all figured out. We could have it all sorted, and we have no more need in our lives for God to actually mess with us or lead us would be another way of saying that. Now, this week, uh, we remembered and we celebrated the legacy of, of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and one of the things that I've been in the practice of doing is uh, just digging into some of what um, MLK did and taught. And so this week, uh, I read his memoir on the, the Montgomery bus boycott called Stride Toward Freedom. And as I read it, it broke my heart, obviously, in all kinds of ways. But one of the things that it was was a, a, a very clear pictures of wills clashing. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as he, as he talked about the story of Rosa Parks getting on a bus and, and sitting in the section that was designated for colored people, and then sitting in that section when the white section got too full for people to sit, being asked to, to move so a white person could have her seat. He talks about the feelings obviously associated with that, the, the, the undignified nature that, that that very practice made people feel. And so uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and those alongside him said, you know what, it's, it's time for hearts to change. It's time for, for transformation to take place. We need to take action and do something. And alongside of that was an, an adversarial approach, an approach that would say, well, this is how we do things. This is the order of life here. This is the way things should be. And so what stood out to me most profoundly, though, was this picture of, of nonviolent protest, right, of, uh, of, of MLK and, and all those alongside him saying, you know what, we, we are going to work to change hearts, but we're not going to do it by violence. 
We're, we're not going to do this by, by making enemies. We're going to do this by making friends. And the commitment to that approach that seemed to me utterly like Jesus. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was in a meeting in Montgomery when he saw people whispering around him, friends of his, and then uh, they come to him and say, uh, you need to go home. Somebody's bombed your house. Right? My will in that moment would say, I'm going to kill somebody. Right? His wife and his, I should say, his wife and his daughter were in the home. Right? Like my will would say, this is not okay and there should be justice. His will, before he left, even find out what was going on in this house, was to say, stay the course. This is a, a nonviolent protest. We, we will not respond to terrorism with like action. We will respond in the way of Jesus. Right? So in that moment, to me, what made it feel so much like the way of Jesus was his prayer is essentially not my will be done, but yours, right? I mean, that's what happens when, when Jesus looks at, at, from the cross at those that have put him there. And he says, Father, forgive them, right? Jesus wasn't in the enemy-making business. He was in the friend-making business. And so that's, that's one will, one side of that story. But the other side of that story was the side that would say, we will, we will protect white supremacy at all costs, right? We'll, we'll throw a bomb on the porch of leaders who are trying to lead us into something different, into racial equality. And what was so painfully clear throughout all of this, this, this uh, recapturing of all that went down was the need for hearts to change. And the commitment to saying, I'll follow Jesus to see what he does. I'll follow Jesus to see how he, he leads to hearts changing. And then to begin to see some of that take place in our world as we look at our world. Sadly, what was true in 1955 is, is not terribly untrue today in 2020, right? I mean, we still deal with some of the same sickness and some of the same cultural ills that have been present in America since its inception, there's, there, there's, there's things around us that are simply not right. And into that, this morning, we believe that transformation is possible. We believe that it's possible for hearts to actually change. I think as we gather this morning, we're people whose hearts have changed. The good news is that all transformation is possible through God's grace. And I hope you believe that this morning. I hope you believe that all transformation is possible. Because I, I don't think as a culture we do always believe that. I, I think uh, especially where we find ourselves now, I, I, there are um, obviously in, in light of tragic aspects of our culture, when you, when you see the need for uh, a movement like Black Lives Matter or the Me Too mov movement, when you, when you see the need for things of those to come to the surface, what you're seeing is that things need to change. Transformation needs to happen. And part of what has happened alongside of that is that our, our culture has embraced uh, what many have called a cancel culture, right? If, if you've messed up, there's no place for you to be a part in helping to move things forward. Now, I think justice is essential. Like when, when we mess up, there will be consequences for our mess-ups, and those will be long-lasting. But the gospel of Jesus doesn't cancel people. Right? The gospel of Jesus says transformation is possible through God's grace, and that transformation is possible for absolutely all people. And it's possible for absolutely all issues, I believe. I think it's part of the Christian hope. I think it's part of what fuels us to move forward and to keep moving forward. What we currently experience in our world is not the end. Christ has something to say to it. But part of the way that Christ speaks is through you and me, people willing to surrender and to enter into that transformation. The scripture tells many stories of, of transformation. 
It tells many stories of, of people who bumped into Jesus in some capacity, and on the other side of it, things were drastically different for them. And one of the, the most uh, key transformation stories, perhaps, that we have in Scripture is the story of Paul. Now, Paul, in, in some of his letters, he, he lays out his credentials, right? I was elite of the religious elite. I knew it all. I obeyed the law. When, when, when I found people, in particular Christians, followers of Jesus who weren't abiding by the law, I tried to make sure that justice was served. So Paul is this person who not only upholds the Old Testament law, but does so to such a degree that he participates in the, the murder of followers of Jesus. He, he plays a role in people being put to death because they've aligned their life with Jesus. And I just, I just wonder, as we begin to read his story, is there, pace, is there place in our culture for a person like Paul to communicate to us? Right? Would, would Paul get canceled out of Scripture if he, were, if he were alive in 2020? Would we say, this guy is a murderer? This guy is somebody for whom transformation is not possible? Would we write him off? I invite you to think about that as we just read the story of Paul's transformation. Uh, Starting in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found there, so if he found any there, who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Just stop there for a second. Just think about the posture of Paul. Now, Paul, as he lays out his credentials in other places in Scripture, you can almost get the sense that Paul was pretty, pretty saw, saw as he was at this point, was pretty proud of himself, right? pretty, pretty proud of the degree that, uh, to which he had upheld the law. And as he comes at the beginning of Acts 9, and he's asking for permission to round up Christians, you, you, you get this posture of power just sort of oozing from him, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and I'm going to get these people who are getting it wrong, who are a threat to what we're doing and what we believe in. I'm going to go and I'm going to bring them to justice. And then his posture changes around this, this supernatural experience, this flash of light that happens, this, this conversation that he has with Jesus, though he doesn't even really understand entirely what's going on. Now, meanwhile, uh, God is also t- talking to a man named Ananias. Now, Ananias is a follower of Jesus, and, and God is saying to Ananias, I want you to go and find Saul, and I want you to talk to him. And Ananias honestly responds the way we would. He says, uh, Saul, so uh, the guy who would like to arrest me and have me killed, you want me to go talk to him? No, no, not gonna, I'm not going to do that. Thank you, but that's an awful idea. But God keeps working on Ananias, and eventually Ananias goes and he finds Saul. And he talks to him, and he explains to him the work that God is doing, and Saul is transformed. Saul is baptized. He has this moment where he goes under the water, acknowledging the death present in his old life, and he comes out of the water into new life. 
And from there, he moves forward. A few verses later, uh, we read that, that Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And he spent several days, uh, we can only imagine, just sitting at the feet of the disciples of whom he was going to arrest, learning from them, right? Not going to drag them away to be punished, but going to sit at their feet to learn from them about the way of Jesus. And it says, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Now just imagine if you're Saul's associates, you're those with whom uh, when he said, hey, I want to go to Damascus and arrest some Christians, you thought, hey, that's awesome. Go, go do that. Now he's coming back to talk to them and to, to try to encourage them to recognize the good news that Jesus is the Son of God. It says, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? As Saul steps into this process of transformation, I think we see several different postures at work in him or several different places he gets to on the journey. The first one that we get to is the, 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 the posture of surrender. He, he goes from being somebody who, whose future is laid out before him. Right? He, he's already arrived in his career. His career path is set. He's got all the credentials. He's got all the respect. He's got the power that he needs. He's, he, he's done what he needs to do to set himself up for the rest of his life. But all that changes with a flash of light. And he's got to respond to that in some way. And as we see the way that he responds to that, I believe he responds to surrender. What would you do if you were Paul? And you realize that your, your will, your, your heart's orientation to rid the world of followers of Jesus is not really what God wants for you. Like what Paul does is he surrenders. He says, yes, that was the way I was going. That was the direction of my heart. That's where everything in my life was flowing from. And it was wrong. And I'm not going that way anymore. Do we recognize how difficult that is, right? It's incredibly hard for us to just even switch an idea in our brains, right? But to, to completely alter the, 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 our, our life's direction, that's incredibly difficult. But it's posture is surrender. I think we should be mindful of this too as we, as we live in a world that's increasingly post-Christian, those you engage with neighbors and people in your workplaces. Increasingly, you are engaging, perhaps, with people who, who have had little expo exposure to Jesus in their lives. And what, what, what you are asking them to do, if you're asking them to begin to follow Jesus or to come to church with you or to begin to move in that direction, is a complete reversal. It's a transformation. It's incredibly difficult. It often doesn't happen with a flash of light. And what happens in a, in a situation like Montgomery, Alabama in the 1950s, where white supremacy and racism are the rule of the day, and you come saying, this is not the way of Jesus. You can pull whatever Bible verses you want, but this is not the heart of Jesus. For somebody to, to say, you're right, I'm wrong, is incredibly hard. But it's essential. It means people have to say, yes, I, I surrender. I, I did that. I went that way. I believed that. But I can do that no longer if I'm going to follow Jesus. I can do that no longer if I actually want the good life. So what does it look like for us as Christians to surrender and to encourage other people to surrender? 
What does it look like for us to look at our world and say, there are lots of things that aren't right. That if Jesus were right here among us, he, he could not celebrate. He, he could not be a part of. It means for us, well, we need to identify ourselves and we need to locate ourselves amongst the things that Jesus would be a part of. And, and we need to be people who are, are willing to look at our own ideas, our own beliefs, our own prejudices, even our own political parties sometimes, and say, you know what? I surrender to Jesus. I can, I, can, I can no longer be associated to this or connected to this and, 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 and baptize it with the name of Jesus. I simply can't do it. I surrender. And I hold that up for you this morning as a posture that I think we all need to be open to, to not assume we have it all right and all figured out. There's probably an area of life for each and every single one of us this morning where we need to stop and say, God, I surrender this to you. You know, I've been holding on to this anger for, for, for this issue for so long. And I haven't had the heart of forgiveness that you have for me, and so I, I surrender that to you. God, I, I've been holding back in, in this way in my life, and, and, and I recognize that you're calling me to step forward, and so I, I, I surrender to you today. For all of us, I think there's space for us to, to lay down our wills and to take on more of the will of God, but it requires the difficult work of surrender. But from that comes participation the opportunity to be a part of something different, to be an opportunity to be a part of God's very kingdom landing right here on earth. We are, are, are through surrender and the process of surrendering, becoming people who can actually participate in the work that God is doing. We're, we're not just people who do the things that we want to do and say, hey, God's a part of this too, right? But it's a complete shift to say, I want to be a part of the things that God is doing, right? I'm, I'm willing to lay aside my will so that I can participate in what God is doing. And Paul, in, in Galatians, as he's uh, thinking about his life, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. My life is no longer mine. Christ lives in me. My life is lived by faith in the Son of God. What, what happens in Paul's life? He surrenders everything. He surrenders his future. He, he surrenders the, I can only imagine the guilt and the shame that are connected to all of these things that he had been a part of. Then he begins to participate in the kingdom of God, in the way of Jesus. And what that leads to for Paul is not sunshine and roses, right? I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't spend the rest of his life just high-fiving people in villages. He gets arrested. He gets persecuted. He suffers in, 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 in ways. But even in the midst of that, he has a, he has a level of contentment, right? He says, my, my life is no longer mine. I've been crucified with Christ. My life is lived for the Son of God. And so he navigates all the challenges that life brings with this level of contentment because he's, he's surrendered, he's participated. He, he's moved his life away from this place of saying, I want to do my will and sprinkle a little God on it to this life that says, not my will be done, but yours. God, may your kingdom come on heaven as it is on earth. And in that space, he, he doesn't lose himself. He finds more of who he was created to be. And I think you will too. And I will too as we step deeper into that. And so this morning, how do we do this? How do we actually become people who are, who are not putting on their left blinker when they need to go right, but instead are people who, who automatically bump into injustice and things that are just wrong in our world, and we say and we know inherently, yes, this is wrong, and I can't be a part of it? How do we become people who more automatically live out the life of Jesus in our life? I think the only way is practice. And the only way that I could get the blinker thing right was lots and lots of practice. 
And I think the only way that we can become people who can actually sub- submit our wills to God's is through practice. And Christians throughout the ages have engaged in all kinds of practices that I think at the heart of them is this prayer, God, may your will be done and not mine. Christians have practiced solitude, right? Getting, getting by themselves with space to focus on God. Now, whether that's through prayer or devotion, it's, it's space that says, God, I'm, I'm opening myself for you to speak. Like that very practice is the practice of saying, God, may, may your will be done. God, may, may you work, may you do something. I'm sitting here in solitude. I don't feel like I'm doing a whole lot, but God, may you, may you show up. The Christians have engaged in the practice of fasting. They're saying, God, uh, in, in, in most cases, the traditional sense, I'm not going to eat. And when I experience hunger pangs, God, that's going to remind me to pray. It's going to remind me to turn my heart to you. Now, what, what is not intentionally not eating and experiencing hunger so that it might point us to the heart of God other than a prayer that, God, may your will be done but not, and, and not mine? The practice of worship, of taking our, atten- our attention and our heart and intentionally setting them on the adoration of God. Saying, God, I want to make much of you and not of me. The practice of worship is saying, God, not my will be done, but yours. And we, we have turned worship into consumption. We, we've turned worship into something for us, to feed us, when it's to be something about adoring and lifting up God. And when it becomes about adoring and lifting up God and not about, hey, do I have a little nugget that can fill me through the week? It becomes something entirely different. It becomes the prayer, God, may your will be done, not mine. It's the most powerful, subversive prayer that we as Christians can pray. The act of service, of giving up your time and energy as you go this week and saying, I'm going to act for the good of another and not for myself. It's the prayer, God, may, may your will be done and not mine in that person's life. Now, as we think about how do we do that, I think for you it could look a lot of different ways. But the Lord's Prayer is a, is a powerful teaching that has given shape to the, the life of the church in, in many ways since Jesus taught it to his very first disciples. It's a prayer that uh, can be echoed by us. It can be modified by us. You can take it into your life in any number of ways, be it these practices or being stopping to say it throughout uh, the day. But to me, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is the, is the prayer of surrender. It's the prayer that makes it possible for us to participate and find our contentment in the good life. It's a prayer that, that fuels us to be transformed, not just to have the ideas mentally, to understand the concepts, but for our lives to actually be changed. And as Jack read, what would it look like in our world if we loved others to the degree that God loves us? Would the world not be transformed? What would the world look like if we forgave others to the degree that God forgave us? Not just believed it or knew it, but if we actually did it, the world would be changed. So church, that's the challenge. May we be transformed. May God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven and not ours. And I want to invite you to, to make some space for that in your hearts today. Uh, the, the, the practice, the place where I think we can start is simply by saying, God, I'm, I surrender. As Scott's saying, I surrender all to you. Right? I'm gonna, um, we're going to show just a, a video that just sings the Lord's Prayer over us. And then I'm going to pray. And then, um, and then we're going to uh, sing that song one more time.